Again, I know we're having uh, speaker difficulty, so uh, bear with me here. I'll, I'll, I'll try to speak as loud as I can and see if I don't conk out uh, by the end. But now we come to our time in the scripture where we hear from God's word. So if you'll turn to the book of Mark uh, with me in your Bibles. There are also Bibles there in your pew. Mark in chapter 10, if you'd like to read along with me. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our God, would you help, uh, first of all, would you help my voice, uh, sustain my voice as I speak? But ultimately, what we really want to hear here is your voice. We want to know you. Help us then as your servants to really hear what you have to say, to know that it is right and good and true, and then to submit then. Help us by your spirit to really listen in a way that produces deep faith in us. Father, we ask that you guide us by your spirit as we read and hear these things uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 10. I'll begin reading starting in verse 35. If you're reading out of the Pew Bible, it's a slightly different translation than the Bible I'm reading from, but it's essentially the same. Uh, so, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. And James and John. The sons of Zebedee came up to him, the him there is Jesus. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, They began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. 
So if you've been with us over the past several weeks and months, you know that we're just reading through the book of Mark. We're following Jesus now on his final road to Jerusalem as he's headed to the cross. And two weeks ago, when I was here last, we talked about how Jesus would be delivered over to death and what that looked like, that he was delivered by three groups or three peoples, that he was delivered by men over to death, that he was delivered by the Father over to death, and he was delivered by his own hand over to death, that he handed himself over to death for our sake. That was last week. Now, here we are on this journey. There's this quirky little interaction with James and John. Now, James and John are brothers, and they've got all the typical brother stuff, but they're part of the inner circle of Jesus. So a few terminology pieces here. When we're talking about disciples, that's really all of those who are following Jesus, which is the biggest group of people. Then within that is a group of apostles, and there's 12 of those that were particularly called by Jesus to follow him. Then within that was a small inner circle of apostles who were closest to Jesus, Peter and these two. So these are part of the inner circle of Jesus. They even got a nickname by Jesus. Excuse me. In chapter 3, in verse 17, uh, it says that Jesus nicknamed these two guys Boanerges, which is an Aramaic word, which means, Mark translates, sons of thunder. That's a cool nickname, right? They were called by Jesus, these two brothers, the sons of thunder. And we don't know exactly why. It doesn't, Jesus doesn't tell us exactly why he called them this. I mean, we can guess. It would be, a, I mean, sons of thunder would make a really great band name or a really great, like if you were a wrestler or something, you could see like a Hulk Hogan type coming out there. I, maybe there already is a son of thunder. I don't know. But uh, we get a sense, I think, in this text of maybe why They were called sons of thunder because they're pretty bold. In fact, some of the stuff that they're talking about here is a little bit spicy. At the beginning of the text, they go up to Jesus and go, hey, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we're about to ask. And you'd expect Jesus to be like, shh, and sit down. But he doesn't. He says, what do you want? And they say, We want to sit at your right hand and your left hand at your glory. That is a thunder move right there. So the rest of the text then that we've read today is really Jesus's response to this, an outplaying of the answer to that question. What does it look like to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus in his glory? And there's a lot of things just to say up front that we won't be able to expand on just for the sake of time. I won't keep you forever. I know we like to eat. Uh, I'll I'll try not to talk too long. We won't be able to touch on his baptism. That's fascinating here. We just won't be able to talk about it. Uh, He also talks about how the seat is not his to grant. Again, fascinating. Hopefully, we'll be able to get to those things in the course of time, but that's a time for another day. Here, we want to focus our attention on really the pinnacle, the high point of what Jesus has said, because it's a core verse, perhaps even the core verse in the book of Mark. 
And it's the last verse in this text that we read. I'll read it again. Verse 45. If you've got your own Bible, you can circle it, underline it, dog ear a page. Uh, if it's a pew Bible, don't do that. Um, I guess you can do that if you want. It's important. Uh, but here it is. Verse 45. He says this. For even the Son of Man, he's referring to himself there, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this verse helps us to understand all of the book of Mark, what it looks like really to be a follower of Jesus. And particularly, it's going to help us understand this section of text because... There is a sense in which a follower of Jesus shares in this servanthood. But there's also another sense in which a follower of Jesus cannot share in this servanthood of Jesus. A sense in which it's shared and unique. So there's the two pieces. First, we'll talk about the sense in which it's shared by believers. So, you'll notice this. The two brothers... These thunder sons, which I've got one brother too, and I don't know how thunderous we are, but I'll take that nickname. They asked to sit at the right hand and left hand of Jesus in his glory. And you'll notice Jesus' response in this, that he does not criticize their requests. At least he doesn't completely shut them down. That's fascinating to me. He doesn't say, how dare you? Instead... He reframes how to do this. He reframes what glory really looks like. And his answer is completely counterculture. He gets to it, or he discusses it directly in verse 42 when he calls all the disciples together and goes, Hey guys, I've got something I want you to listen to. Verse 42, he says this You know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That phrase, lord it over them, is, is interesting. That essentially some rulers dominate the people they rule. And I don't need to give you a whole bunch of examples of this because I'm sure that resonates. We know that is true, but it's um, not just true. It's been true for a long time. It was true in Jesus' day. It's true in our day. Uh, if you're familiar with the book The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli, maybe that Machiavellian, if you've heard that term, someone who's deceitful is called Machiavellian. Uh, he wrote a book called The Prince in the 16th century on what it looks like to, to have power or to rule, or at least his thoughts. And I think even though it was in the 16th century, we still see parts of this true today. One of the most famous sections is this, just a few sentences here. He writes this as he's talking about what it looks like to lead. He says, upon this, a question arises, whether it's better to be loved than feared or better to be feared than loved. It might be answered that one should wish to be both, but because it's difficult to unite them in one person, here's the line, it is much safer to be feared than to be loved. Do you hear what he's saying? As he speaks to leaders and says, let me tell you what it looks like to be a good leader, he says, rule with fear. 
Doesn't that resonate? We see that in certain areas. In, a, in essence, he's saying, lead by control. And we see that happening in government politics. So we could talk politics all day long about this and go, ah, yeah, this side does that, that side does this. Of course, we've seen it throughout the centuries. And it happens on a broad scale, but it also happens on a small scale. This happens in our families. We lead by control, by pushing. Sometimes that shows up with a fist, sometimes even literally so. Sometimes that shows up leading by control in a subtler way, like the silent treatment, or subtle versions of manipulation. It happens in our families even. We lead by fear and trying to lord it over another. You'll see then Jesus' response. He said, that's the way the world operates. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. Don't do that, he says. <laughs> they lord it over each other. They control by fear and power and domination. But he says, do not do this. Otherwise, you're going to get caught in one of those games of King of the Hill. Remember that game? Did you play that as a kid? And there's a pile of dirt, or sometimes if mom's not home, like a sofa or something. And someone gets on the top of the dirt. Does anyone play that? Little, young people, do you play this anymore? Is this a thing? Uh, where you get on the top, and the goal is to, like, stay on the top. And people, like, try to push you off or pull you off, and it's really fun, and usually you're bleeding at the end of it. Uh, but, you know, you stay, and you kind of squat down, and, and if it's inside, you usually break a lamp or something, and then that's, when it, that's the end of it, because mom now has heard. Uh, so that's the game, and he says, that, I, I don't want that for you. I want something different than you. Now, this doesn't mean that we would say that there is no authority at all. Jesus affirms forms of authority. He also doesn't say that I don't want you to have power in some sense. He affirms appropriate forms of power, nor does he say that I don't want you to have some sense of glory. But what he does say is I'm going to change what it means to be first. I'm going to ch change what it means for you then to be the greatest. So then the question for us then is, what does glory for a Christian look like? And in verses 43 and 44, he says, glory looks like servanthood, and you're to be a slave. Yikes. Because as soon as I hear that, I go, wait, 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 wait. That cannot be right. Servant, maybe. Slave, whoa. Because isn't slavery, like, really bad? And yes, in many forms it is. Over the centuries, sometimes people tried to use the Bible to support slavery, and it does not. The balcony back here, I'm sure you're the, familiar, a lot of you with the history here, was designed to have slaves be able to worship with us. But that, even that is not good once upon a time. We know our context of slavery, of what it looked like in the South, is very different than what he's talking about in slavery here. 
That sort of slavery is bad, but here when he says, I want you to be a slave, here's how it's different. This sort of slave, this sort of servant, does so willingly. This slave is a slave of their own volition, of their own choice. They choose to serve another. This does not mean that we're being called to be doormats. The Bible calls us to holiness and to hold one another to call for holiness in others. It also affirms the dignity of all people as created in the image of God. So we're not doing doormat here, but we are called as Christians to be servants. And I think I know that in my brain, but it's a whole different thing in practice. And I know how I feel about it as soon as I'm actually treated like a servant. If you had so, ever had someone kind of speak to you as, as a person might speak to a servant, and you go, at least in, you might not show it on your face if you're really good at covering it up, but you might go, well, who are you? You feel that indignant sense or like that sense of entitlement or like, how dare you disrespect me like that? When someone treats us like a servant, when we feel that indignation, it reveals that maybe I'm not really acting like a servant. Even more difficult for us is, he says in 44 at the very end, whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Mm. Man, I could barely you know, handle that in my own family, but a slave of all? Come on now, Jesus. And we've got to ask ourselves, does our own life really look like this? Do we even want our own lives to look like this? Because this sounds awful. When I read that, I go, <laughs> that sounds... I don't want a life of servanthood. And, and, and let me say this. It might sound like a horrible life, but I think the more I think about this, this is actually completely freeing and life-changing. Life let me tell you why. Last week, I was reviewing some of these things, looking at the text again, uh, just kind of thinking through, okay, what is Jesus really saying here? And as I was doing this, I was having breakfast at the hotel for General Assembly, and it was so busy in this breakfast place, and, and there were tons of people, and the waitresses were running around everywhere, and they've got pins stuck all in their hair that they forgot they put there, you know, and get that frazzled state. And I'm sitting there, and I waited a long time to even have someone come and ask me my order. And I started to get like, ah, you know, I'm going to miss my shuttle in. I'm going to miss the first session of the thing. I started to feel that sense of like frustration. And then I look at this text and I just laughed. I thought, man, I stink at this. I am not doing this. I know she is, she's about to serve me food, but I'm her servant too. And just let that sink in for a moment. Now, I, I struggle with this. I wrestle with this also. But for a moment, I think the spirit just squeezed in. And when she finally got to my table, instead of being like internally like, hey, where you been? I said, looks like a busy day. <laughs> that must be really crazy for you all. 
And the woman just, she took a breath and she said, it is pretty crazy, but you all are so full of peace. And I thought, huh. Here's a conference with a bunch of pastors of Christians. Don't we want to look like a people of peace? That was so freeing in the moment, just for a second for her, to not be treated awfully, and frankly, for me. Because what good is it for me to go, you know, that sort of, where you been? Come on, waitress, over, over here. You know, 30 people are calling that all at once. I just kind of let it all I'll go. It's freeing for her, freeing for me, and in essence, to be a servant of all means I'm done with the king of the hill stuff. Um, When we are already servants then of all, there's no more perpetual power playing. There's no more like perpetual seeking of honor and respect and really our own glory and trying to scrape for that. When I'm already a servant of all, what can people really do to me? If I'm already the bully's servant, what can he do to me? If I'm already my enemy's servant, what can he do to me? If I'm already the terrorist's servant, yikes, really what can he do to me? And if I'm already my grumpy neighbor's servant, Not literally you all. I know my neighbors are in the room. If I'm already my grumpy neighbor's servant, what can he really do to me? That's incredibly freeing. It will help us know how to love the Lord and, in essence, to love our neighbor. But there's even a bigger reason why we do this. You see it in verse 45. The very first word here is a tiny little word that really matters for us. So Jesus has just said, you must be a servant of all, verse 45, for, that word there means, I'm about to tell you the reason why I want you to do this, for, here's the reason, here's the because, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The reason why, in other words, I want you to be a servant is because I, Jesus, the Master, I am a servant. That's crazy. The place where this is clearest in Scripture, and we have to read this on one hand just because it's beautiful and and true, is in Philippians chapter 2. Here's just a few verses. Paul writes this in uh, Philippians 2, starting in verse 4. He says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's what Paul is saying here. He is saying Jesus actually is God. He is one with the Father, and yet he does not grasp at the glory that belongs to deity. 
He does not grasp at the honor that belongs to deity, even though he has every right to say, bow to me right now. He has every right to do that. And yet Jesus is a servant. He's a king, the creator. He's in Mark, the son of man, he says, which is a call back to Daniel in chapter 7, which is a divine person. He's claiming his own divinity. He's saying, I'm king, creator, son of man, divine and holy God, and yet I am a servant. That is so bizarre. If we were to be a fly on the wall at the Last Supper and the night before Jesus died, you kind of know all these stories, very Eastery stuff. Do you know in John 13, when it's talking about how Jesus took off his outer garment and, and he knelt down and he washed the feet of his disciples? If I didn't know anything about that context, and I, I just looked at a snapshot of it, and I asked, who is the master here? I would not pick Jesus. The one kneeling, the one washing feet, the one serving and yet, there he is. This is one of the key themes of Mark. That it's our call to follow him in this, by his grace, with the help of the Holy Spirit, that we are really to be servants of all, because ultimately we are servants of Jesus, who is a good Master, who is a kind master, who is a gracious master, and who is a humble master. So in that sense, then we are to share this call of Jesus. But if you've tuned out, come back, because this is very important for us. In one sense, we share the servanthood of Jesus, but in another sense, we do not share it with him. In fact, we cannot. It is, there is an aspect in which Jesus' servanthood is completely unique to him. Back in Mark, here's where verse 45 matters for us. He says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and, here's the rest of it, to give his life as a ransom for many. The wording of that's very strange. To give his life as a ransom for many. Because when I think ransom, what do you think? Kidnappers. Is that, is that right? I think kidnapping. Like, they, they cut out the, you know, the letters out of, a, out of a newspaper and piece it on it and says, I have your person, give me a million dollars. That's the ransom note, isn't it? And that's what a ransom is. It's a payment for something else. How does that fit in with what Jesus is talking about? What is Jesus actually paying? So let's give us some context to this. In the Old Testament, the Jews were sinners because we're all sinners. And so to come before a holy God, that sin had to be paid for. And the way they set it up or the way that the Lord had set this up as sort of a foreshadowing of what was to come is that they would kill animals. Blood would be shed to pay for the sin. It was called atonement or paying for these things because the sin of the people, even of individuals, had amassed a huge debt. And the wage or the price of debt of this sin is death. Or in essence, even scarier, God's wrath. 
the price of sin, the payment of sin, is the wrath of God. That's very scary. And this is a very big problem for us because our sin is very big. So big that it would literally take forever for us to pay it off. In fact, for some, that will be the case. That's what hell is. An eternity paying for sin. In fact, they'll continue to amass debt for sin and receive forever the wrath of God. That would happen for all of us. So what do we do? This is where the writer of Hebrews is very helpful for us. In Hebrews chapter 9, you can turn there if you want, just a few verses. The writer of Hebrews then is connecting what was happening in the Old Testament where they slaughtered all these animals, all this blood was shed. Okay, now how is that connected to Jesus? And you can probably fill in the dots here, but here the writer of, of Scripture, and we're cutting it in the middle of a sentence, but he, the, the he there is Jesus. This is Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 12. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, here's what the writer is saying. Jesus, in his death, is a blood sacrifice and one that is without blemish, one that is perfect, and because he is God, is a sacrifice of infinite value. This sacrifice, then, is a ransom, is a payment, to God. He is paying off the wrath that is due for sin. And by this payment, he bought us. That payment's not paid to Satan. Satan doesn't own us. That payment is not paid to man. Man does not own us. The payment is paid to God to really satisfy the debt of wrath against sin. So the big fancy word in the Bible for this, if you stumble upon it, I want you to know what it means, is propitiation. Ooh, big fancy Christian word, I know. But the word propitiation, it really means two things. One, that the wrath of God is satisfied. It is removed for a believer. And then two, more importantly, that the wrath of God is removed from a believer and that believer then is restored to relationship with God. That's what happens in a ransom paid by Jesus. We see this most uh, spelled out, last place we'll go, in Isaiah 
chapter 53. We talked about this earlier in our service as part of our, our words of assurance after we had the confession of sin. Uh, so this is a section of Isaiah where there are a number of things called the servant songs. There's this figure at the end of Isaiah who's the servant, is what he's called, um, who's doing all of these uh, things. And, and the biggest one, or at least the most famous, is here in Isaiah 53. Here's just a small section of it. So this is about the servant. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4. Surely he, this servant, this is a reference to Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken. He was smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Here's the line we want. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The ransom payment is done, and even more than that, we now have peace, not only with each other, but peace then with God. And that means everything to us. Because then a believer is transformed from being an enemy of God to being a son of God. And this can only be accomplished by Jesus. I cannot pay my own ransom. I don't have enough to do it. I can't pay your ransom. Only Jesus can do this, and Christ knows that there's something distinctive about what he's doing. Here in Mark, when he talks about the cup, in verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And you know that on the night that he's in the garden when he's praying to the Father and he says, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Here he's talking about his death and in some sense a follower of Christ will drink that cup. Maybe not necessarily death, but in the sense of physical pain or hardship. We know that was true for James and John, the Thunder Sons. James was actually killed by the sword, executed, and John was exiled to an island basically put in prison like Alcatraz. Both of them, in some sense, had to drink the cup that Jesus drank. And as servants of Christ, that's true for a Christian as well. But, hear me now, in another sense, a Christian does not drink the cup that Christ drinks. Because what's happening for Jesus is more than just physical pain on the cross. It's more than just the beatings, the nails, and the crown of thorns. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath in our place. He drinks that cup down to the last drop. There is no more wrath then for the believer, and in propitiation, he restores us to God. Now, we're almost done, but as we wrap up, I just want to stop for a moment and sit on this. Let me read verse 45 again. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the reason why I want us to sit on this for a second is because a major theme in Mark, as I've said, is discipleship and what it looks like to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And we know that 
every person, every human is a disciple of something. You can't avoid it. You're a disciple of some hero of yours, maybe of your own career. You're a disciple of your parents, of some political leader or leaders, of some writer, of some philosopher, of some poet, of some scientist, maybe of your own desires. You are being discipled or following after something. And if it is true that I am a disciple, here's what I want to know. Is the one I'm following worth following? Is the one that I'm following worth following? And as we look at Jesus here, here's the one that calls us to follow him. As we look at Jesus here, we see our God, one who gives his own life, one who pays a ransom to restore us, one who came not to be served, but to serve. Isn't he worth following? Would you pray with me? Our God, we know that sin has amounted this infinite price, but that that price has been paid by an infinite God who for his people has infinite love. Thank you for your sacrifice for our sake, that you've given yourself up in a way that no one, including ourselves, could ever do. You've restored us. Help us then to be servants. Servants not only of you, but to really be slaves of all for the sake of your glory. We ask for your help in this, and we do trust and follow you. We ask these things then, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.